You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Afternoon, all. <laughs> we waited to the very end there, didn't we? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought I'd do a bit of a JVG sort yes. of a intro. Hello. Or, hey, this bloody computer that's not working. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John, if you're listening, don't, don't get angry with me. Um, a very, very good afternoon to you all. Thank you to the scientists... We are in the afternoon glide slope here on this fabulous station, 3 Triple RFM. Across from me, uh, the man who instills the confidence of the broadcast. Really? Yeah. This is news to me. Oh, that, come on. <laughs> I bet I like that. You're the, um, you're the man who makes sure that uh, everything is shiny and, um, and comes out of the speakers sounding extra polished and good. Glossy. Hello, Cameron Smith. Matt Stedman's good to see you. Likewise, you're looking well. You've had a very busy week, I know. I have had a busy week. It's been a marvellous week. Um, really, really, really good. Uh, highlight being going to Yarra Valley. Yes, yeah, you did that on Friday. Oh, I did indeed. Yes. yes, we will indeed. Um, uh, met a, a very, very interesting chap by the name of Elijah. Elijah. Very Old Testament kind of name. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, channeling that inner Old Testament thing. You'd think he'd be an old guy with a beard, maybe, you know? Yes. You know, carrying around stones and, you know, Elijah. No, but he's not. He's this young dude, and he is a dude. And um, he, what, what's he – why are we speaking to him? Well, he is a forager, and he was the forager for Rene Redzepi. Yes, when is, uh, Rene visited Australia. Yeah, which I think he's still doing, isn't he? I think I don't know. I don't know. Yes. Mere mortals like you yes, and I don't know things like that. I often get to step in the rarefied atmosphere of no. those sorts of restaurants. No, we're still waiting for my invitation to go and try <laughs> his food. I've <laughs> uh, not wait too long. Yeah, yeah right. And, but anyway, the thing was that I got to meet this guy who's um, grown up in the Blue Mountains um, mm. and the Northern Beaches and got to discover his area because... Probably because of the influence of his parents. Mm. A couple of academics, botanist type thing. Yes. It's rubbed off on him. And now he is an espouser. Mm. Is that a, a word? We, we, let's run with it. Oh, okay. Thanks. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he reckons, <laughs> that's probably a better, yeah. uh, what he reckons is that um, you should be aware of what is growing within your area. And I, it seems to make kind of sense. It's to such me. a strikingly simple concept. Well, but, and, and, but it goes against the whole economic imperative that is sort of put on yeah, top of it a bit. Yeah. So in a way, you know, getting back to that, we say this every now and then, folks, mm. and as I said, good afternoon, food is and can be politics. Very much so. Very much so. Yes. And speaking of food as politics, um, we have an issue with an industry that is – well, in crisis, yeah, I'd, I'd actually I say so, well, yes. the, yeah, the dairy industry has um, been suffering the slings and misfortunes, shall we say. It's been all over the newspapers too, so obviously um very big issue as we head into an election. And we've left it alone because for both of us, we sort of looked at each other and said, God, this is big. This is, <laughs> and I don't want to go on to some misguided polemic about it. That's exactly right. And I, I, I freely admit I don't fully understand all the variables enough to really form an opinion as yet. But we have someone who um, is do. willing to stick his toe in the water. <laughs> yes. A brave man, um, and one <laughs> that we both of us admire greatly. Mm. Uh, Richard Cornish. Um, how do we describe Richard? Um, Richard's a food writer. He's a columnist around town. Lovely. And co-authored a good number of cookbooks. 
And a very important part of our food culture here in this state, I would say to you. So anyway, he's going to – we're going to have a conversation about that. And um, later on the show, yes, I did meet um, Elijah, Mm -hmm. um, who isn't an Old Testament prophet. No. No, he's a New Testament forager around the place. And I had a good chat to him because, uh, as I said – Went down to the Yarrow Valley, went down to Oak Ridge, yes. uh, got to hang out with the guys and then also hosted a dinner that night. And it was just – it was a long day. Yeah, because you said you were you were there at like 7 a.m. 7 in the morning. morning. So to, to get there, that's what I – got to leave home at about 5.30? Yeah, Joe made me a cup of coffee though, so thanks again, Joe, for that <laughs> as we came here. Yeah, I want coffee. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a long day, but it was a fabulous day. It was, yes. um, it was really, really interesting. So – I don't know. That's sort of the the show for today. Um, but what do we got here? Looking at today and um, mm-hmm. stories that are around. Oh, the first thing I wanted to do was to talk about um, the birth of agriculture. Right. How does that sound? It's a, it's a very broad uh, topic. A good thing I'm to do. It. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I've just lost the story. Wouldn't you know that? Oh no, here it is. <laughs> here it is. No, it's cool. Just stand by. Um, you know, there is um, a saying that. First of all, how long has agriculture been around for? I would say thousands of years. Yeah, it has. Um, I thought it was around about three thousand years, and yes. I think that it sort of grew from the fertile crescent. Right, yes. That's sort of, you know, the Fertile Crescent, uh, which is sort of around the Nile and mm-hmm. around, around sort of there, Egypt going into, I think, what would, would have been Samaria. But Chinese villagers, mm-hmm. they say, could have been sharing a beer about 5,000 years ago. Yeah, right. And one of the things that um, was kind of interesting is that there's a view that's coming out now that we started agriculture not to become. Ooh. Oh, I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> you have so many devices. I know. And it's difficult to and put I, them all on silent. I thought I'd turn that one on sub. Oh, that's right. That was the one that was updating halfway through. <laughs> but with the, the, the common sort of knowledge is that we started agriculture to feed people yes. and grow crops and sort of hang around. But there's a new thing that's coming out, Matt. Mm. The reason why we started doing agriculture was to make beer. And to get really? and get a little bit off chops. It's funny the, to have a beer and enjoy the uh, the satisfaction that comes from ethanol. If there's one coursing. resounding thing that just shines through all sorts of humanity over the years, <laughs> over the centuries, it's the extent to which we will go to to change our reality to get high. <laughs> yes, it is. God bless. It's insane, isn't it? So, uh, so here it is. This is an article actually from what was it? ABC Rural. Um, Residue on pottery from an archaeological site has revealed the earliest evidence of beer brewing in ancient China, showing barley may have been used for beer long before it was grown for food. The artifacts show people of the era had already mastered an advanced beer brewing technique containing elements from east and west, um, according to the study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now... Yellowish residue gleaned from pottery funnels and wide mouth pots showed traces of ingredients that have been fermented right. together. Broom corn millet, barley, a chewy grain known as Job's tears. <laughs> nice. And, uh, and tubers. The discovery of barley is a surprise. Lead author Zhang Wang of Stanford University said, saying it is the earliest known sign of barley in archaeological materials from China. So just to restate that. 5,000 
years ago, yes, parts of China in China harvesting barley, no, fermenting and brewing, yeah, yeah harvesting indeed. barley and then fermenting, uh, which I reckon is yeah, kind of wild, isn't it? Really? So there you go. Yeah. So there's uh, there's a thought. Uh, what have we got today? Did we find anything interesting? Oh, 1897, mm. Jello was introduced. 1897, right. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realise it, was, um, that, it old. was that old. And anything interesting happened? Let me just have a quick look at 10 minutes past the hour of 12 here on what we'd have to say is a bit of a wintry day. It's, yeah, I think winter settled into Melbourne. Mm. Um, in... Um, in some parts of the world, apparently, it's National Cocoa Van Day, which uh-huh. I think is a good idea. We haven't had a Cocoa Van together. I we? no, I haven't, I haven't done a Cocoa Van in years. Yeah, I think it we might, should. Might we be should time to do that. Chalk one in this winter. Love Cocoa Van. Yeah. Love it. Um, anything else interesting? Coca Cola in 1886, invented by pharmacist John Stife Pemberton, uh, was advertised for the first time in the Atlanta Daily on this day. Mm-hmm. And what else? Anything interesting other than that? No, not really. Oh, 2004 tens of millions of pounds of almonds were recalled by one of the world's largest almond producers located in California due to a salmonella outbreak. Right. Yeah. At least 25 people were sickened in states from Alaska to Michigan. Watch out for those nuts. Yes. They could be bad. Look, it's 12.11 now. We were going to talk very briefly too just about one topic that's not about food. Yes. We were just going to highlight again the um, Keep Community Radio campaign that uh, you've got a very impressive piece of A3 paper with your details. <laughs> just hold that up to the microphone. There you go. <laughs> well, that was a bit loud. Sorry well, about that, So what this is all Apologies. about is in the most recent federal budget, uh, the federal government has cut the funds that it uses to supply the community radio sector with digital transmission. A paltry $1.4 million. I mean, in the yeah. scheme of things, it is not even the money you find at the back of a couch. Pretty much. In the scheme really? of the federal budget, I agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is. So, yeah, $1.4 million. Uh, has been cut. Uh, oh, what yeah. do they say? Yeah, drop in the ocean for the federal budget, but critical for community radio. What do we want you to do? What do we do? We need you to sign a petition, folks, because, well, obviously we're invested in this. Yes. Um, but we do this because we believe in this medium and this ability to talk about what we um, what we deem as important. Yes. You know, and we can see that all day. I mean, um, the scientists. Yes. Talking about their issues that are here, the I doctors. Mean, oh even outside of Chipotle, the other stations, the other excellent community stations around Melbourne and the other capital cities. Um, so the handy thing is there's an election on right now, you might have noticed. Yes. And so, uh, sign the petition. So go to keepcommunityradio.org.au. Uh, you can sign the petition there. But I would also strongly encourage you just to get in contact with your local candidates and see if they could possibly think to support the reinstatement of that How do you funding. get in touch with your candidate? I mean, really, what, what do you do? I think you just send them an email or you a tweet. Do they have to answer those? No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. So what? So so if you see how them, do you know that's going to have an just, effect, though? Just tackle them at the... at Because, the, you know, they, they're usually hanging around tram stops, etc., or bus stops, oh, yeah. train stations. Go and have a chinwag. Well, it might be a good thing to talk about the next um, uh, doorstop photo op uh, media circus thing to maybe <laughs> go... Mm, Muscle your way through and uh, say something that politicians maybe don't want to be hearing about. Yes, you know the the inconvenient truth. Can we have a music track? Or are we going to go to Richard? No, we're going to get. We're going to play some pay some mortgage, I should say, and then we're going to go to Richard.
We're going to go straight to Richard. All right, so play some music? Should we play some music? I, I think we will. That You're way in the movie for some music, I can I tell. Am, I, just, I, I think I just need a, a little chilled track just for us to compliment, have a look and contemplate this day. Yeah. This is Cat Power featuring the handsome boy modeling school. Take it, cat. I think it's going to blow up with that note. Yeah. That's a tough note to get. Uh, 12.20 here on, um, well, actually, it's 12.21. And uh, one person never had to find the notes for uh, intellectual rigor. <laughs> Richard Cornish. <laughs> mm, yeah, I know. Good. I know. I knew it's you'd cringe. It's Sunday morning still, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, mate. Um, first of all, <laughs> a very big good day. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Good morning. Hello. I love the mellifluous tones. Now, um, we might as well just jump straight into it. There's been a huge controversy. Uh, it's been a, well, actually, bloody hell, it's a train wreck, isn't it, really? Dairy is rooted. Uh, dairy is stuffed. Uh, that's, that's what's come out, coming out. This is the, look, it's complicated. It's a complicated story. Um, there's not just one dairy industry. There's a whole lot of different um, milkers, manufacturers, um, and processors making everything from uh, fresh milk we drink uh, or put into our coffee uh, to powdered milk that's sent over in, in uh, container loads over to Asia and, and the Middle East. And, and then uh, we have to... And, and we also think about maybe um, uh, boutique cheesemakers... Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the value-added sort of area on the on the end of that sort of thing. Yeah, and what we're looking at now is is the, is the collapse of the go, uh, the global uh, price for uh, milk solids, and that's what it comes down to. Really, it's, it's powdered milk that, that's fallen apart. But this yeah. is the driver. This is the driver of the uh, global industry. Uh, about uh, two years ago, everyone saw uh, China as being the uh, the place to sell uh, powdered milk to. The they panacea. The mm. Yeah, they, they they developed a taste for dairy. Uh, and everyone globally went, okay, let's go, let's sell to China. In April uh, 2015, EU dropped their milk uh, production quotas, which meant that across uh, Europe, uh, people geared up, they uh, increased their herd size, which mm-hmm. you know, it just takes a little while to kick in. Uh, you just can't, cows just don't grow on trees, they need to be bred and, uh, and to, to land in the paddock or into the shed. Yep. Uh, so that happened in 2015. At that point, uh, the European dairy people said, this is going to be a disaster for us. Uh, either it's going to be the, we're going to see a lot of small uh, players leave the field, uh, leave the industry, and it's going to be very costly for us, and only the big players will survive, those who can conglomerate and have great big herds on an industrial scale. Sounds like the, the globalised sort of script being played out on all sorts of industries, doesn't it? That's from the, from the playbook of globalisation. <laughs> That's the playbook of globalisation. Playing into that at the same time is that China has been developing very quietly, year by year, silently. Their herd increases. We've been sending 747s uh, of uh, little uh, young cows. And bull, and, and bull uh, semen. <laughs> yeah, bull semen. There's been semen, embryos. There's been a genetic yes. uh, smorgasbord that's been put into the uh, into, uh, Singapore Airlines uh, uh, cargo uh, planes and landed in, um, in uh, Beijing, Shanghai. And places around, uh, so their herds increase, and they're now that that, that herds now come online. Now, interesting little thing that's playing into all this. It doesn't get talked about a lot. Is the uh, the downing of the Malaysian Airlines uh, passenger jet uh, okay. and in in the Ukraine that was shot down allegedly by ah, uh, yes, Russian-backed troops. Yep. And so there's been a global uh, embargo on uh, exporting to. Uh, to Russia, Russia, Mother Russia yeah. of dairy and cheese. And we saw many, many things, um, news footage from 
uh, from Russia about, uh, well, you know, uh, trying to re- rebirth their industry and also um, a whole bunch of stuff being buried and disposed of from yeah. from other countries. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so you've seen... Uh, so it's that, that's just playing into the collapse of this, uh, this global price. Interesting, that's a little uh, digression. Um, the Australian uh, apple and pear industry is suffering as well. Uh, they've had to find new markets for uh, palm fruit, apples, pears, that would have been exported to uh, to Russia. Yep. And they're now hunting the world to try and make up that shortfall. So all these things are playing into it. And what it means for our farmers is that, you know, we, and we've heard all of the stories, uh, the big processor says, no, we're not giving you $6 whatever per kilogram of milk solids. We're dropping it down to 4 and we're, and we're going to revise that down again. And in fact, you owe us money. And so that's what's been playing out at present. We're seeing people who have borrowed to increase their herd sizes Mm-hmm. And uh, they are now being told, well, not only do you owe the bank money, you also owe us money as well. Yeah. Uh, the government stepped in, offered a $550 million aid package. But if you look at it, it's, it's what they're doing is offering concessional loans around about 2.5%, I think. So people are going to have to borrow to pay back loans. <laughs> Yeah, and it's crazy. And, and um, if we look historically back at it, I think there was the last time this happened, the government offered about $30 million worth of concessional loans. And I think after 18 months or something, only $2 million had been spoken for in that, that anybody was interested in. Yeah, uh, dairy uh, dairy farm. I've come from a dairy farm myself, and I know the dairy farmers are the type of people to put their hand up or out. Uh, pretty, and they don't collectivise uh, unless it's into a big organisation, big collective cooperative like Murray Goulburn. But not the type of people to stand up. And I went to the uh, went to the um, uh, Fed Square the other day to, to join the march in support of the dairy farmers. And you know what? They're all too busy on the farm to go and walk on Parliament. There's, I reckon, we counted about 300 people, mm. um, and that's not even that's not even a tenth of the number of families um, in, in in Victoria. Um, I can, I'm not being critical uh, of them, but it's just life's so bloody hard on the farm uh, that, that they just don't have time to have a voice. Mm. The other thing, the other thing too, Cam, that plays into this, we as a nation are to support our, our dairy farmers. But uh, but if you look at it, dairy is a dirty industry. Uh, we are sold cows on pasture. We are sold happy farmers. We're sold white mustaches. Yes. Dairy involves large herds eating off an irrigated pasture uh, in the north state, uh, and that uh, then we then dehydrate that milk to send it overseas. So we irrigate and then we dehydrate. There's a lot of energy going both ways, and people are making money, but they're not at present because the uh, the price that they're being paid per let's say litre is about thirty seven cents. Let's say around about that. Some people fifteen cents now, yeah. and it costs them about. 38 cents a litre. So every time we give buy milk, we support farmers by engaging in uh, just buying buying the white stuff or buying cheese, we're sending a message to them that it's okay to go backwards. And there's a huge economic logic gap in what we're, do, we're trying to do by supporting farmers by saying it's okay to go backwards we're sending them further and further into debt. Uh, and it's debt that's caused by this lowest common denominator that's raced to the bottom to produce the most uh, milk. At the cheapest um, price. At the cheapest price, but you know, they're, they're, they're struggling. They don't, they don't want the price to go up, naturally. Mm. But in doing so, there's corners cut. And I tell you what, 
a dairy herd these days, the average cow, she gets sent off to the ch- to the abattoir three or four years. At three or four years, when we were milking on the farm, uh, a decade, uh, two decades ago, our cows were they were lasting twelve years in the herd, and they're still giving us really, really good results. Why? Why so do we? Why are we sending them off so quickly? Is that because the production sort of peaks at, at that time and starts to go down? Uh, production, uh, we're just hammering the cows so hard. Yeah. We're pushing them and pushing them and milking them so hard. We're um, pushing them through the system. So there's not much in it for the cow, to tell you the truth. And, and she gets a baby taken away from her, uh, her calf taken away from her at uh, about seven days. And you know what? It's not good on either of them. And, um, and most of those are uh, the ones that aren't used to... Um, replace the herd, they're sent off to slaughter uh, and the calves are sent off to turn it to veal or chemicals for the, or process into chemicals for the um, pharmaceutical industry. Um, so, you know, that's the, the, the ugly, nasty side of, of dairy farming as well. And I don't think there's any, any particular person who likes that, that process. Um, and and what, we're creating this waste stream of, of um, young animals uh, in an industry that is, you know, it's on its knees already and we're not investing into the environment as well at the same time. There's a lot of problems with, um, with groundwater and uh, water quality around dairy. So I reckon if we're going to support the dairy industry, we should be asking questions, well, well we need better farmer, farmer welfare to begin with, yes. animal welfare, and environmental welfare as well. We should be looking at triple bottom, bottom line. We shouldn't just be throwing money can, in a bad industry. Can you just describe, because uh, that's something that gets, it gets bandied around, when you talk about something being triple bottom line, Richard, what does that actually mean? Okay, trip and bottom line. There needs to be a profit in the, for, for the farmer. Okay. There needs to be something. They need to get something out of it. There needs to be uh, a social impact, a social uh, social benefit, something that benefits some benefit to the local society. Yep. So, needs, so we need to start, yeah. That's the two. What's, what's the third one? Environmental. Environmental too. Environment, so profit, social, and environment. You should be and all also, winning. And, and and also animal welfare as well. Yeah. There needs to be something something in it for the for the animals as well. Present this, you know, you know, I'm looking at some pretty ugly herds, and those animals covered in mud yeah. and and, sh- and and shit. That's normal for uh, that's normal for uh, wet, wet wet conditions. Skinny as well, bones yeah. everywhere. Um, you know, I've, I've, when you go to a herd that's in good condition. They're on, uh, they're on decent, they're on decent pasture. They're not always covered in, 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 in filthy, uh, in filth. Um, they are, they're not all skin and bones, you know, just ribs and hips. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's a decent bit of covering on them as well. And those animals are lasting for, you know, you know I'm talking to people who are milking their animals out to 12, you know, 12 years, 10, 12 years. Um, so yeah. I'm not saying dairy's bad. I'm reckon there's a, there's an ugly semen dairy that we need to be addressing, and that's the mainstream. I'm more than happy to go and buy a supermarket or buy Parmalat uh, Organic, which is a lot of biodynamic uh, growers sending the milk into that stream. And you got then you got small uh, producers like you know Simon Schultz from Tim Boone. Schultz is milk, um, yeah. Yeah, I really like the stuff that's they're doing at Inglenook uh, Dairy, uh, but basically if it's got an organic uh, label on it. Uh, they've got a whole lot of criteria that looks after the animal welfare and the, uh, and the environment as well. One of the things it, it appears to me is that, um, and it, it's always a worry when people are uh, bringing something to market, whatever it is, and they have to be price takers rather than price setters. That's sort of a, a bit of the, the problem we have here, is it not? It's endemic. Uh, look, we're doing dairy at present. Uh, this conversation is going to be... Uh, 
out of the uh, the news cycle very shortly, um, the, and, and this problem's going to keep on going. Yeah. We're going to have uh, a lot of problems with, still with dairy on for the next two years, and it, yeah, let's just pick any industry: potatoes, uh, palm fruit, um, you you name any primary production. Uh, a lot of farmers are in the same predicament. Uh, it's just that dairy is such an iconic. Uh, an iconic industry. It's got that that rugged individual farmer. It's got the the we can we have contact with the product on a daily basis. Correct. Uh, people of my generation. I'm, I'm uh, in my late forties now. We were given milk at school, uh, and that was an incredible piece of marketing that had welded on um, uh, consumers. But younger people, younger people are turning their back on it because they they are looking at the at the pros and cons of the uh, of the industry. Mm. And they're going, no, you know, we're not. They're not so engaged with it as the older generation because they don't have the contact with the farmers, and they don't, and they don't not buying the spin from the industry. It's, 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 it's complicated, and we'll, people will stand on various parts of the political spectrum on this. But uh, in my house, I know that my my daughters are now saying, no, we don't want dairy anymore. So, well, God, it's really, really good stuff. But you know what, Dad, I'm not going to drink that. You know, they're twelve. You know. That's it's there's, there's a whole lot of change coming through, and if um, yeah. we're not reacting to it, and not to mention lactose intolerance with uh, a lot of people around the place too, huh? Anyone I'm predicting? I'm predicting the next big intolerance is going to be intolerance intolerance. A what intolerance? Intolerance intolerance. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> hey, and just one one last thing before we go. Now, um, there's been a, a whole consumer led. Um, well, the consumer herd, shall we say. Well, let's look at them as a herd of cattle sort of stampeding and saying, well, okay, what we'll do is it was the supermarkets all to blame, so we just won't buy any of that uh, dollar a litre milk and uh, that will help. Is that a misguided position to be in? No, um, I'm not going to blame the supermarkets. Their, their directive in, in, uh, in life is to uh, make money for the shareholders. For their uh, shareholders, that's yes. What that's what they're always going to do. And they're going to shaft everyone else in the, uh, in, in the process. Yep. Um, you know, I'm, if, you're going to, if you're going to consume milk, you should uh, just... Okay, let's say milk, let's say meat. Let's say dairy, let's say meat. Mm. Um, the mantra is uh, uh, consume less, buy better quality. Yeah. With, uh, with that, looking at that triple bottom line, look at that. It should taste good. It should make you feel good. Uh, that's your, what you're getting out of it. Uh, you should be able to do lots of things with it. It should be part of a really good diet. Uh, and uh, a flavour is really, really important. And the better flavour products tend to be the ones that come from uh, producers that have that triple bottom line. They look after their farmer. The farmers are happy. Uh, they, uh, the animals are well looked after. And the environment's not getting, getting a beating. And dare, dare we say it could be it's a reflection of their own ethos and their own terroir, yeah? Yeah, well, there's a whole lot of guys into that. But um, if you look at someone who's, who's, uh, who's able, to, um, able to at least feed their family and, uh, and have some time off, they're going to be able to look after themselves and their, and their herd and their, and their farm better. It's, it's complicated and it's such hard work. I cannot tell you how, how hard uh, the work on a dairy, dairy farm is. It is excruciatingly oh, it's hard. A, it's insane, isn't it? It's, it's like, in, you know, when, when most people are in bed, the, the dairy farmer is up and he's at the herringbone and dealing with a lot of others. You and you are, as a dairy farmer, you are constantly surrounded by every single problem, the fencing, yes. the drainage, the water supply. Yeah. You are, and inside your house, you walk it in at the end of the day and you, could, you, know, you, need to, you need to shower to get rid of the smell of dirt and shit from yourself. Yeah. And 
it is such bloody hard work. Um, and we're asking a lot. And I am, you know, I'm throwing it out there t- today, you know, triple bottom line. But yeah. that's, gonna, that's a huge ask. I just to throw that out as a, a postulation, wow. uh, not a panacea. Yeah, and uh, and maybe as a starting point. Well, 12.37 here. Richard, thanks for taking the time to just sort of distill what is this maelstrom of concerns and ideas and finger-pointing and stuff like that and try to make some sense of all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it, gets, and it gets more and more complicated the more you look into it. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, with, thanks for giving us a, a good first shot at it triple bottom line folks i think maybe that's something we should be thinking about uh, applying to the industry and maybe asking some questions richard enjoy the rest of your sunday i hope you're taking it easy and you're looking after your own herd at home aren't you oh yes um what do you what do you, what do you want for lunch darling no, you want dumplings in your school lunch? Okay, uh, there you go. That's, that's beautiful. She's 12, she wants dumplings in the school lunch. Right. Dumplings in the school lunch. Well, look at that. Richard Cornish dealing with his own herd at home. Thanks, mate. We'll, uh, we'll leave you See to you it. Soon. See you, Richard. Richard Cornish there from, uh, well, Cornish headquarters. Yes, <laughs> the Cornish division. The Cornish division. <laughs> uh, 12.38 here on 3 Triple RFM. I am but putty in Matt Steadman's hands, so he will tell me what we are doing next. We're going to pay some mortgage and we're going to come back with Elijah. Uh, foraging. Okay, so here we go. Yeah, groovy, baby. I really like that. That was kind of nice. Uh, 12.40 here on 3 Triple RFM. Yes, I was lucky enough to go to Oak Ridge to forage around yeah. with uh, forager extraordinaire. His name's Elijah Holland, and the, the interview starts like this, where I say... Elijah Holland, uh, very, very good. Where are we? Afternoon to you. How are you? Good, Matt. Good. How are you? I'm, look, I'm really, really good, and thanks to you. had a, a, a fabulous morning, but... Maybe what we might do to paint a picture for people is to just say, first of all, where are we, and then what on earth are you doing? Um, well, we're in the, the Yarra Valley at, um, at Oak Ridge. Uh, uh, so, you know, me and Matt kind of uh, got together and uh, had a bit of an idea to do a bit of a kind of out there, really lovely, you know, dinner with, to do with all the wild produce and, uh, you know, wild stuff. And we've basically based the entire meal around all wild produce that we found and then you know all the other gorgeous things from his farm is uh, you know all the added extras and stuff so we haven't ordered anything for it everything is from the whole local region of the Arrow Valley and um, so I'm just um, over this big uh, really ghetto but beautiful built uh, barbecue yeah if I can just describe it it's sort of like it's besser block sort of a u-shaped besser block sort of construction a bit of Rio uh, reinforced steel. We've got a gastro, uh, gastronom, uh, a big one. This is the number one, I think it is. Yeah. yeah uh, filled big. with beef fat, and we've got slippery jacks that have just been sort of poaching in it. Yeah. So yeah. So we're just um, these gorgeous uh, big slippery jacks and Jersey cow mushrooms, which are pretty much exactly the same thing. They're belitas. We're just poaching them in this gorgeous beef fat. So they're about probably you know nearly about seventy degrees, and we're just poaching them really lightly. We're going to chill them down. And then we're going to char grill them, hit them with some black garlic seasoning, and then it's just going to be like having a piece of wagyu. It's just going to be epic. It's vegetarian wagyu. Oh, it is the best of the best. The interesting thing, uh, Elijah, is um, I haven't actually seen your business card, but uh, uh, I imagine it's got the F word on it uh, printed in there. And um, 
am I correct? Would you have that on that business card, of a forager? Um, yeah, well, um, my business is actually called Nature's Pick. Yes. So, um, I mean, uh, so I source wild Australian produce all around from the, sourcing, uh, from the northern beaches all the way up to the Blue Mountains, down to the Snowy Mountains. And, uh, you know, I've really luckily made it down to the Yarra, uh, Yarra Valley. And starting to understand this region now too. So people might know you from a very, very famous person that has come down from the north to... Uh, to start a place, I'm of course talking about Rennie Redzeppi, and uh, and you got the gig to be his forager, which is yeah. awesome. Um, yeah, how did that happen? How um, did you score that gig? Well, it, it was really uh, lucky, you know. Um, a great friend of mine, uh, Grant King, he um, uh, I supplied him with a whole bunch of really you know wacky, really cool different you know forage stuff. He gave uh, you know uh, Bo and some of the Noma boys uh, my contact details. Ah, uh, okay, and, so you were headhunted. Yeah, and then I uh, rocked up to a meeting and showed him about probably like, you know, about oh, 80 to 100 or more containers of different wild uh, forage stuff that I'd kind of uh, collected from around the whole general area. Because this is it. When you're going to meet someone like Rennie, you really want to have oh, I mean, your, your best stuff. You're not exactly. going to I mean, for me, hold back. For me, just meeting was just, I mean, that, for me, that's awesome. You know, he's been one of my, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, how do you say it? kind of like mentors with stuff that I've learnt and, and you know uh, somebody I've always looked up to inspiring of, human exactly, being exactly he is here. And, and maybe for those of you that uh, might not know who uh, Rene Redzepi is maybe we should just spend maybe 15 seconds just to describe who is this dude why is he important in my opinion, I think he's, uh, you know, one of the greatest chefs I've ever learned anything off. And just the the way he kind of, uh, you know, implores himself, like, and, he, you know, puts himself out to people. I mean, yeah. the first time I ever met him, he treated me like, you know, I'd known him forever, like I was his man, and never treated me any different. Just was an absolute, you know, top bloke. Yeah. And, you know, happy to share his knowledge and really, uh, you know, he's a really influential person. Like, uh, And I guess if we're going to position him for people, he was one of the, the first people maybe other than the Italians and stuff, that said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat to my region. And this is what I'm going to... I could be doing the, the Dover sole with the, you know, the, the, you know, beurre blanc on it, but no, I'm going to go out on a limb and do that. So yeah, well, that's it. Wild forage produce stuff around yeah. his area and then doing, uh, you know, reconditioning uh, and giving it a new touch and, mm. and kind of giving people... The landscape of what's around them, you know, yeah. which is a beautiful thing rather than trying to source, you know, um, I mean, like, you know, beef from the other side of the country or, yeah. you know, and getting, you know, vegetables shipped across for you. So, and, and I guess one of the things that sort of really excited me, the fact that he was coming down to Sydney, um, was the fact that he is probably, of anyone in the world, he is probably one of the ones to make us really reinterpret or interpret a lot of the bush foods and indigenous foods that we have that we may not know about. Would that be a fair call? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and the cool thing is, I mean, it, so much of it is so completely and entirely different and the complex flavours and, I mean, half, I mean, not even half, sorry, almost 90% of all our native uh, foods do not grow anywhere, I mean, yeah. let alone in Copenhagen and in Denmark, you know. I mean, our climate is so entirely different to theirs that it's ridiculous. And, I mean, all the, I mean... The, the flavors and the, the different textures and, uh, you know, uh, the difference in produce from here, I mean, our native foods is insane. I mean, the complex carbohydrates, proteins, minerals, and nutrients in them. Yes. And then the, you know, it's a very, a lot of it's a bit of an acquired taste and, you know, it's something that nobody might have had or something like that. And it's a taste that we as Australians, we still, we're, we're not used to. 
All right, we um, we'll probably just have to stop this for a sec because there's there's a big damn semi. Jeff, you wonder what that sound is? Uh, that's come round to the back of the winery here, and it is big. And it's a good thing that we got to move my mate's car too because that just would have been taken out. Back to um, Rene. But no, actually, to you now. How did you get your interest in this sort of in this gig? Because in a way. Even though it's sort of as the zeitgeist going, this is more and more we're sort of understanding regionalism, foraging and stuff like that. But you were pretty much on the vanguard on this and, and wondering, how did, how did you get interested in, in finding food from your environment? Um, uh, to, to be is honest, that a good way to describe yeah, it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, I think the first thing is, I mean, I grew up with, you know, my, I was really lucky to have parents and grandparents that are really, um, you know, knowledgeable with, you know, my... my parents are horticulturists and a couple of intellectual academics yeah yeah i mean you know they've got a great knowledge of stuff and you know taught us a lot of stuff from young age of you know just general stuff whether it's maybe nasturtiums or you know or learning from my grandparents about monsterio delicia when i was a young kid oh Um, the fruit salad plant yeah yeah well i remember when i took that and showed that to rene um uh, he said it was the most exquisite and uh, exotic fruit he's ever had in his entire life. It is pretty... And then it gets weird, though. You can only have a little bit of yeah, it, and then... The, is that acid? It, it, so what that is, is uh, on the on the uh, little segments, you've got this little black kind of skin or little film. Yep. And um, uh, that, you just want to take that off, and then it's com- the entire play, uh, thing is completely, um, you know, it, it's fine. It doesn't have that astringent taste. Yeah, so yeah. you just need to remove that off. And the best way to remove that is you just put in a bit of water and you kind of move it around, and my mum showed me that. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, for those of you that, that have never tried this, the Monastera Deliciosa, the, your typical pot plant, isn't it, really, when you think indoor pot plant, it throws out a flower stem and... This bright green scaly fruit almost. Yes. And it looks almost prehistoric. It's, a, you know, mm. really kind of like tropical jungly kind of, you know. And, and, and the look of it is almost like custard apple Yeah, exactly. Like little yeah, yeah. S- tiny segments of pineapple but custard apple and the mm. flavor is you know and its other name is fruit salad plant so yes yeah yeah and so so this was so the parents sort of instilled this understanding love and desire to learn more and more about what's around you yeah yeah i definitely you know so i grew up you know with them having a farm and when did you grow up like, Whereabouts? uh northern beach oh well i grew up out you know out west and on our farm which we had in londonderry uh and windsor and richmond yes. and then moved to the northern beaches when i was really young so i've windsor grown up uh, around the northern beaches so which is a, a you know a gorgeous area and that's where you know so working as a chef i you know i had a good bit of knowledge from my parents about you know different stuff that grew around wild and then i just got you know really you know uh, kind of, you know, enthralled and excited to find out more and more and more. So I just kind of really extensively researched a lot myself and really taught a lot myself and also with my good mate, Buen, who's my business partner as well. So we kind of, you know, we were just fascinated with finding out about every single thing, if you can eat it, if you can't eat it, if you can eat the leaves, maybe the bark, okay. maybe the Boil the up the roots. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know. So everything, for instance, even if something's in season, when it goes out of season, there's still another part of it that, that, you know, is beautiful and you can use. So, you know, maybe the fruit's out of season, but maybe then you can use the bark or you might be able to use the roots or you yeah. might be able to use the fungus that grows in and around it. So, you know, nature's a beautiful thing because, you know, everything has a season in different, you know, uh, shapes and forms. Well, and especially when, I mean, I'll say a cliche and something, really really obvious nature's a wonderful thing when you're actually living in harmony with it and not exactly. fighting against it yeah exactly i mean i mean that's a big thing with foraging as well so look a lot of people and might go seasonality and food and, exactly and, yeah. a lot of people might go out foraging but then they rip things up and cut it so um 
you need to be very conservative with how you do it, and so, you need to work with the land. So, for instance, I mean, you wouldn't be digging and ripping things up. It's, you snip things, and cutting and snipping things, it promotes growth. And mm. you just need to watch when you go out. I mean, don't trample over everything. You, you just be very aware of, because what you're essentially treading on is a garden. So, so big eyes... Um, big eyes, a, a light touch, and a thought for tomorrow. Very aware, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, that makes sense. Just try and be uh, very aware of your surroundings, and, and you know, I think it's a great thing to kind of know what's the ins and the rounds, and the, you know, because yeah. everybody knows, you know, we grow up, um, you know, learn what cabbages and carrots and beetroots, but you know, none of that's native to Australia, and it's actually really hard for that to grow here. Yeah. And you know, a lot of our native food is just really unique, but it's, you know, it's endemic to this country, and it only grows in this country, a lot of it. So I think it's something we should all be, you know, more aware of. Or even just, you know, the, the generic things like, you know, clover and wood soil, which is an edible, you know, it gets cut every day, but it is a beautiful edible herb, you know. That was a revelation for me today, Chef. And um, you reached an understanding of your area, Northern Beaches. That was your sort of your first botanical yeah. classroom, if yeah. you like. Well, and, and also the Blue Mountains, because I grew up... Uh, going to the Blue Mountains since I was a little kid with my grandparents, with my parents. And, you know, my parents mm-hmm. over about probably six years ago uh, bought back my grandpa's house in the Blue Mountains. Oh, really? And, um, yeah, yeah, so, and now which I'm, I've turned into a farm pretty much. Have you really? So, yeah, yeah, so also there's another two... Where, whereabouts in the Blue Mountains is it? Katoomba. Katoomba? Yep, yep. That's pretty nice country around there. Yeah, yeah, so, my, you Except know... Except you've got to work, be careful walking around because you could fall and hurt yourself if you fall in the gorge. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Well, watch out for that first but step. But that's where the whole being that's aware of your right. surroundings comes into play. Yeah, well, that kind of helps because it means <laughs> that you get up for the next day to, to, to do it again. Exactly, so, exactly. I guess my point is that you've um, got to understand this area, um, Northern Beaches, Katoomba, the mountains, the Blue Mountains. And now you're hanging out with um, Maddie from Oak Ridge... And I guess for us, being Victorians, what have you discovered that you can share with us that we should go and try um, and find? Pretty much, have, take a look around and your backyard and mm. your surroundings, it's pretty much a supermarket, you know. But in saying that, try and be away and, you know, don't pick things without knowing what you're doing. I mean, you know... You Especially wanna... when it comes to mushrooms. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You want to you be aware of what it is you need to find out. So, I mean, research, look it up, yep. ask somebody, you know, kind yep. of, you know, just do a bit of background research on it. You know, it bring a knife? Good. Yeah, well, bring a knife. So, in so some cut, sort of... the thing was cut the mushrooms rather than rip the whole thing exactly, up because exactly. what so, happens if you do rip up see, a whole mushroom? Well, you, you're taking away its spores and its roots and, you know, a lot of people would probably see a mushroom be excited and rip it out and, you know, I actually did that for the first time, mm. you know, and my business partner, Boyan, was mm. the one who, you know, showed me differently with that. So, yeah, it's just kind of being aware and conservative and just remember it's you know it might not be your you know backyard or garden but it you know it belongs to the environment and and you know which it belongs to everybody so and we want to call this cut and come again stuff rather than rip out and then that's it exactly because you know you want to come back and and grab it again um you know you don't want to be ripping something out and then you're trying to search the rest of the countryside Mm. so if you're if you go about it the right way first well then you know that could be there for the rest of your life and then for your grandkids life and everybody else has there been anything that you've tried down here that you, you know, thought is kind of extraordinary and amazing? Um, what, what are the highlights, I guess? I mean, to be honest, the highlights are making the great mates already that I have done. You know, I haven't really known Matt for that long at all. And, you know, I've made, you know, a life long, you know, I th- mate now. I think you not have. Only seen that, the way- not only that, but his uh, mate Jack... Mm. is, you know, I've known the guy for about two days and I think me and him get on long like House of Fire. So it's as if I've know, known him for about 20 years. Like, he's an absolute legend. So, so the, ca- the camaraderie of the foraging trail, I suppose, is 
is one thing. Yeah, actually, you guys are just like two peas in a pod, though, really. Yeah, well, I mean, Jack and... Simpatico or yeah. what, yeah, you know. Yeah, but it's, it's good as well to have, you know, partners and friends like um, from, you know, fr- friends I made at Noma, Eska, for instance, who's just come down to help out for the day, you yeah. know, and who's, you know, is as keen as every single person else and just wants to help out, and he's just smashing, you know, uh, the whole day out. So, yeah, it's, I mean, this area, it's a beautiful area, and, I mean, the amount of produce we've found for this, we actually had to stop finding produce because we just found too much stuff. <laughs> yeah, we did actually. We had to. We, we we actually had to stop. So again, so Elijah, an obvious question: Why should we forage? Why? I mean, I mean, it's a. It's a why should we forage? That's a, that's a good one. I mean, um, it's kind of. I mean, you can see we've just turned this entire meal you know into you know what for 50 people mm. out of all this wild uh you know produce which is just around the whole area and it just kind of reflects and shows what's around the beautiful area yeah yeah um i don't know if i really explained it properly there but i mean so i think l- it's l- let, me, let me help in paraphrase so by what you're saying one we have economics two we have understanding and knowledge yeah? yep and then also sustainable. Yeah. Not only that, it's. Um, I mean, I'm sure everybody's bored of just having the, you know, mega carrots and you know the silver bent. I mean, it's a complete, almost not a different species, but it's a, an entire new tawar, you know, like of yes. of uh, you know of stuff. I mean, and a complete different point of difference, especially if you're a chef, you're mm. working in kitchens. You know, you might be cooking at home just to mix things up, change it up a bit. You know, everybody likes to a little bit of change and doing something new, something different, mm. and that's exactly what it is. But it, and I mean, the flavor depth. Uh, you know the, the flavor profiles, and um, also, you know, the nutritional benefits and aspects of it are, you know, far greater. For instance, um, something that's planted a farm. I mean, generally, a lot of the time it gets watered too much, or it's on a you know irrigation system, so it's always constantly getting watered. Yep. So because yeah. of that, it, it flourishes. It has a really great life, but it doesn't really try very hard. So the flavor profile isn't there. But something that has to really, uh, you know, it has to search for water. It sends its roots deeper and mm-hmm. has to really work for it. So it's getting more minerals, nutrients. And then, so the nutritional benefits and the, and the flavor profiles are far stronger because the, the plants really had to work for its life. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it goes the same with everything. If you get given everything too easy in life, well, then, you know, you, can, you might do well. But, you know, that's it. But then when you, you don't have to work for it, then you can really create something amazing. So you, you, you're going to get the flavors too. And another thing that sort of struck me too, Elijah, is, look, by, by doing foraging and getting out um, and around the place, you're sort of creating your own cultural traditions that can then be passed down too. Hundred percent, and I tell you what, that's a good the, thing. The, the best thing about it is, I mean, look, it's outdoors. Everybody loves being outdoors. Let's face it, mm. and it's a lot of fun. I tell you what, I've taken all my best mates out from mm. you know all the boys to Lucas and James and and um, Sean, um, Jared, all my really good close mates. Um, and they get out there and they just love it, you know. Some of my mates are bodybuilders. That one of them's in the army, doing loads of things. And I bring them out foraging with me and my mates. And you know what? They love it. They get fixated, and they they're the ones there. You know, some of them end up finding more stuff than me, and it's awesome because it's just fun. It's you know, and it, look, it's nothing can you know. It, I don't know. Uh, there's nothing bad about it. It's just a fun experience, you know. It's just it, you know, and doing it with your mates, your friends, or with your family. It's just like. You know, I mean, it's it's fun going to a farm, pulling up a carrot, but then it's also fun fun to find something that's just wildly grown and it's just there, nobody's touched it or done anything to it, and it's just like, bang, this awesome product. And it's mine and it tastes amazing, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. And dare I say it, that, the, you know, there's sort of this um, reflection sort of back on something that this country's never had, 
um, which is sort of peasant culture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. I mean, because it's uh, it's striving for good food, and it might look like that whole you know kind of peasant kind of thing. But then again, we have you know the best chef in the entire world come over, and that's mm. what he's famous for. You know, yeah. that's what he's famous for. And then, I mean, that really says it, doesn't it? Like, and and dare we say it, that the, you know you, you think about the il il carne de povero, you know, the meat of the poor, is stuff that you really have to work out exactly. to get flavors. You, you know, when you think about it, years ago, I mean, rabbits and all, I mean all that type of stuff, and, and shanks would have been like nothing. Sure. And now, and look they at the, were. Well, yeah, but look at the prices of all that stuff now. Yeah. You know? advice for people in um if you want to get out into your own backyards and search around for foods what are we what do we got to know Uh, as we look at these glorious mushrooms in their in their just rested through and you can feel they're just now they're just they just want to go in the cool room and just chill down and Mm. do a bit of research and the thing is all the answers everything is on the internet it's on google just a bit of research yeah you know and um you'll come across almost everything you can find yeah. uh, for it on there. Lovely to meet you. Have you got a web presence or anything that we can find out what you've been doing? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, just, just my Instagram, yeah. So, uh, which is um, at Chef Elijah Holland. And, yeah. I mean, I put everything to do in and around that and, you know, the adventures and stuff I get up to with me and all my mates and mm. the food and what I love to do. And, you know, and the best thing about it is everything I do almost every day I get to do is, is actually my job and you know I'm, isn't it awesome and, yeah you know, and I think it's, it's very lucky to go really go and find that thing that you really like and just go do it well look Elijah it's um it's it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and hang out I'm really looking forward to having dinner tonight uh and may I wish you happy trails in the people you meet and the produce that you find and uh oh, this ever expanding thing in this thing we call life awesome thanks a lot Bang, look at you go, Matt. You just nailed that one. Uh, that was Elijah Holland. Um, Did I ask in 10 seconds or less, how was the dinner? Was it good? The dinner was incredible. Yeah. It really was. I think it was a bit of a watershed for the area. That It was, uh, I don't know, maybe one of the first times in that area that everything came from within that area. And yeah. I think that's, that's kind of a good thing. Big thanks to Richard Cornish for having a chat and yes. helping to distill... What is a very, very difficult situation. We're going to get maybe a little bit lighter next week. We'll go and see John, but we still want to talk about kitchen gadgets as yeah. opposed to maybe augmented tools and, I don't know, what's in your kitchen that you couldn't live without. Thank you so much for listening. Matt's uh, already written up the show summary. We might have some photos of uh, Elijah and the dinner. But the main thing is, thanks for listening. See you next week. What's coming up next? Sunday lunch. Sunday lunch. Take yeah. it away. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.